0: welcome to the who knows this podcast where i track down in the trenches experts to answer questions that we all really want answers to i'm sam visnick and i'm a veteran in working with people with chronic aches and pains by way of massage therapy exercise pain education hypnotherapy and lifestyle education today we're going to talk about strategies for making changes by understanding how your brain works and what you can do to get the results that you really want so let's get started welcome out there everyone to the podcast and today my guest is l michael hall phd he's a prolific author in the psychology and self-development field having written 66 books amazing uh 40 serial books and over 100 published articles he completed his doctorate in cognitive behavioral psychology from union institute university in cincinnati ohio with his dissertation completed on languaging of four psychotherapies including nlp which we're going to talk about ret reality therapy and logo therapy using the formations of general semantics dr hall has conducted private therapy and practice for 20 years has lots of experience and also ran an nlp training center for 10 years He's co-founded Neurosemantics, Metacoaching, and NLP Leadership Summit, and has also collaborated with Richard Bandler, who is the co-founder of NLP, and having written several books for him. So Dr. Hall is clearly an established and distinguished expert in his field, and I credit him personally with a lot of my own personal development for near 20 years now through his writings. To say I'm happy to finally be speaking to him, I'd have to say, is an understatement on my end. So Dr. Hall, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I've got lots of questions to ask for you, and we'll see where everything goes here. In particular, I want to kind of set the frame for our folks listening here. I want to talk about two primary different kind of elements here, chunking this into. Number one, we're going to talk with Dr. Hall about helping us understand how our minds actually work. And the second thing that we're going to do is we want to talk a little bit about actually putting this stuff into action to change how our minds are doing things. And that way, we can kind of clarify those two different things because they're both super, super important. So, Dr. Hall, you are obviously a super huge expert in the field of neurolinguistic programming. Can you help our audience understand what neurolinguistic programming or the acronym NLP is?
1: So, the simplest definition is it's a communication model. It's how our brains enable us to communicate with ourselves and then with others and as a communication model, it identifies, as a were, the channels of communication. So how I communicate to myself is I make pictures in my mind of things. I record sounds. I say words to myself. I have sensations. And so these become the levers of communication. So when I want to change my communication, changing any one of those features will really change the, the messages I'm getting. And when I communicate to someone else, if I enrich the visual system, auditory system, kinesthetic system, or the language system, it changes the communication, making it richer or diminishing it, making it less effective. So NLP, the linguistic, neurolinguistic, is the neurology and it's the linguistics that we use to create our sense of the world.
0: That's a great description there. And I can imagine the immense variety of ways that people create their internal realities as a result of this, because we have a lot of words available to us, don't we? No, definitely. And you'd started off as, I would say, I don't know if it would say a classical, a psychologist, and going through cognitive behavioral therapy as your specialty. And so that has its own kind of stuff. And then how did you kind of move into NLP as a result of going that way? How did you stumble upon this?
1: So the rational emotive or the cognitive psychologies are all based on one basic principle. As we think, so we feel. As we think, so we behave and act and move around in the world. Change the way you think and the behavior will change. So that's that's cognitive psychology. What NLP did and what I found in NLP was it fleshed it out into a lot of details. So how do I think? Well, I think visually, auditorily, kinesthetically. And so it gave me many more details than just you think. When I found that, I realized that this was going to make a lot more specificity and precision
0: in what I was going to do in the field of therapy. So in cognitive behavioral psychology and training, Do they not have specific kinds of technologies and tools like we see with NLP?
1: For the most part, no. Basically, Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck and those who developed the cognitive approach, they would argue with beliefs. Interesting. Well, if you've ever argued with anybody about what they believe, you know that this is not an effective way of causing change because people will defend their
0: beliefs. So it sounds as if you kind of get what the therapist doesn't have, a, again, a technology for implementing these sorts of discussions or progressing them, that really what it gets into is if you were naturally gifted at being influential, you were probably going to be able to help the patient. And if not, you didn't. Exactly. And that doesn't yeah. sound like a great way to have consistent results with people. <laughs> exactly. My wife and I, and my wife's a clinical nutritionist, and we talk a lot about this because there's so much psychology that goes into our work. And the field is just constantly arguing about saying, you know, healthcare practitioners are not psychologists. But the ridiculous part of that is, is that we're actually trying to enact behavioral change with people. So we have to understand this. And the challenge we always said is it was like, well, well, what happens in the psychology field? I mean, do they have their own models for this? But in referring sometimes to different types of therapists, we just see inconsistent results. They didn't really seem to have a system which led us to one of seek out practitioners that used something like NLP, because then we would associate that to say, well, maybe they have a system for implementing the things that they did. And in my work early on, as I discovered neuro-linguistic programming, it was probably Tony Robbins in the beginning. But Mm -hmm. as I had learned where a lot of his information came from, that's where I came across your books. And I remember book number one was User's Manual for the Brain, uh, which in reading that was just like this aha moment of like, what, what is happening here? Where is this, this information is actually available to be able to put structure to actually helping people, understanding people and helping them change. Mm-hmm. So that's a big deal. Okay. So in this interest in moving into that direction, obviously was helpful. I do want to make a, an additional distinction here is NLP oftentimes gets intermingled with hypnosis. And yeah. what is the relationship between NLP hypnosis and their difference?
1: If NLP is a communication model, the original founders decided to start modeling Milton Erickson, a famous medical hypnotist who used hypnosis in medical areas. And, of course, what he did was communicate in a hypnotic way and with hypnotic linguistic patterns. And so NLP is not hypnosis, but it uses hypnotic language patterns at times to facilitate mostly the installation, the deep imprinting of an idea, a belief, a suggestion, a post-hypnotic suggestion, so that person then begins to be able to live it out, and it's not just intellectual.
0: That is a huge topic that I want to talk about. So we have this model of communication, right, in which we're trying to probably extract information from people and to understand Mm -hmm. their internal reality, and we can communicate with them. And then we have this other tool over here, hypnosis, which is actually when we figure out what we want to do, that you use this model to kind of get that information in there. Am I right Uh on that?
1: That's the best way to use hypnosis as helping a person understand what they want to install. The misuse of hypnosis is when I decide you need to have this installed in you, and then I impose it. And they don't know what I'm doing because it's working with their unconscious, which then makes hypnosis manipulative. That's right. But if, if we take the time to, to talk about with a person and what they want to believe, what they want to be living out. So one of the questions we ask in neurosemantics is, would you like to commission that thought to drive your behaviors and body and emotion? so that people choose their hypnotic trance and the other thing about hypnosis is that most people are in dysfunctional trances already and need to be dehypnotized brought back to their senses so they can choose a better trance
0: well wait a minute michael i've heard that people certain people cannot be hypnotized because they don't have a certain degree of suggestibility based on a scale. So how can they already be in trance if they're not hypnotizable? Yeah, exactly. And and that's one thing I think it is a good one to explain for the listeners is this concept that people cannot be hypnotized, which it sounds like a fundamental misunderstanding of what hypnosis is.
1: Um, Exactly.
0: So you're saying that people are in trances all the time. They're in hypnotic trances
1: how we define a trance is a person has gone inside and we all go inside we take a moment to think about something that doesn't exist in the moment and in our immediate presence and we're inside back when we're in fifth grade or when we're at work but we're not at work and so hypnosis is just going inside our minds and being aware of things that are not immediately present. And in that sense, we have the highway trance, we have the elevator trance, we have all kinds of trances where people naturally normally just go inside.
0: And they're just gonna kind of checked out, sounds like situations like people perseverating or lingering on certain types of stressors that they constantly are thinking about, yeah? So they're in a stress trance, essentially. Well, I experience this a lot in my work and working with people with chronic pain. We talk about this in that the paradoxical element with chronic pain is that by considering or continuing to overemphasize or pay too much attention to the sensory input of pain, you're raising the brain's awareness of those sensory inputs, which oftentimes makes you more sensitive to it. And that sounds like they're in a pain trance, essentially. Yeah. And we're definitely going to talk about how to actually break out of that. But the recognition that it's happening sounds like it's just first step, very important that they're doing it, right? As you got into NLP and you started to implement this work into private practice, did you have a great amount of success with it? And in what ways, like which things did you seem to make the most progress on people? Or I would say in, in some cases, run into dead ends with them, like the, in terms of the model and the way that you had to expand it.
1: At the time, when I was doing therapeutic work, I was in a small Colorado town, so I was seeing a range of everything. It wasn't like I could specialize as if being in, in a large city, Yeah, and so yeah. I saw everything, and the thing that was the common denominator between whether it was people with conflict with family members or going through a divorce or suffering depression or alcoholism, whatever it was... The common factor was the way people talk to themselves. And by catching how they talk to themselves, which induces the state or the trance that they were in, by breaking that, then it opened up opportunities and choices. And what NLP did for my therapy practice was essentially put me out of business. You're fixing people (laughs) fast, huh? (laughs) It, It was too quick, too fast. And so... I started getting into doing trainings and trainings in communication that led to a lot of other things. And so I decided that what I would do would be to model expertise. And so I moved from being a therapist after a few years into just looking for expertise in human beings because the NLP presupposition is that if somebody can do something, they can get over depression quickly. They can be resilient in the face of adversity. They can, instead of taking insult, just not take insult and stay calm and cool. Then there must be a communicational structure to it. And if we can find it, then it becomes a resource
0: for anybody who wants that experience. So, this is an interesting point in that you moved from therapy toward this, like more successful modeling, because it also sounds like this idea that we are constantly focused on in my world and talking about exercise, which is a lot of times practitioners are so fixated on finding problems with people and then trying to fix those problems, which from a therapist perspective, sounds logical. But Mm -hmm. on the patient's end of this, the message that they're receiving is that they're broken, and that something is wrong with them. And it starts to develop a neuroses with them about certain things like for example, in my field and early on in my career, I was taught posture. Posture is pain and all this kind of stuff. So then what people would start doing, I'd say, you're in pain because your posture doesn't look like this textbook. And the encouragement is to get them to correct their posture. But then I'd start to see a degree of obsessiveness about that, is that people were now, they get out of pain when I'd help them make changes, get their muscles to relax and so forth. But then the problem is I created another issue, which is that now they were terrified of not having good posture because it was going to mean that they were in pain. I feel like we're along this lines of this transition from, again, the broken therapy model toward teaching them how to be successful. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It creates what I would call a false orientation, being oriented to problems. And, of course, if you're oriented toward problems, then you're going to find them. And you're going to find some things as problems that aren't problems.
0: Now, that sounds like something that is a higher frame, which I want to talk about. But dropping the hint in there is a larger program that a person might be running, right? Yeah. So I love that idea. And I hope the listeners are catching this is the shift between these two things, right? Marketing is constantly problem-based. We know that in marketing, if you're writing, you're putting together a website or you're doing a, writing an ad what you want to do is attack the problem or to tell people that they have a problem that they didn't know they have. So that seems like that's really what it is, is that maybe our minds are also so programmed to search out problems.
1: Right. And our brain is, and especially the lower parts of the brain, is designed to search for problems. And so searching for problems, finding problems, solving problems is what the brain does. It's natural. But it can be overemphasized to where instead of looking for solutions and looking for strengths and looking for resources, we look for problems and the orientation becomes
0: just too strong. Helpful to know to the listeners, Mike's written a whole number of books about this, about leadership and so forth, which is, is about having skills and so forth, moving, obviously solving problems, but developing these other skills as well let's talk about a few other things. And you took the NLP model, you did some additional things. In particular, you had designed uh, some additional models that, that coincided with NLP or say linked into them. One of them in particular was something that I found extremely profound. And when I got into NLP, I was learning all of these techniques and nothing really strung them together. And they seemed to be very kind of separate. And then you brought in what you call the metastates model. And this was just Such a game changer that almost to the point where I'd start not thinking about other techniques because it seems so important and so powerful. So you talk about what a meta state is and why you developed it and, and what it does.
1: In terms of the way we communicate to ourselves, I not only communicate maybe this is fearful and go into a state of fear, but then I can have a second thought. And my second thought is I'm afraid of my fear. And that second thought, that second response, first response is to the fear that may be accurate or may not. But the second thought is not about the world anymore. It's in reference to myself. This is the part of the brain that does reflexivity. We can think about our thinking. We can feel about our feeling. And if you don't manage that well, then you can bring negative thoughts against yourself and the energy has nowhere to go except to your body, to your mind. And this is how we humans can create all of the pathologies we have that animals never experience. So you never see a cow worrying about going to the slaughterhouse. Yeah. Because they don't have enough consciousness to be aware of their awareness. So a metastate is a state about a state. And it sets the frame for our states and as such is the most important thing about a person is not are you afraid or not, but what do you think about your fear? And the answer to that will tell me if they're turning their energies against themselves or if they know how to be kind and gentle with themselves so that they use this reflexivity for their well-being and their health and their
0: energy and their resourcefulness or against it. I can see how that could be many things that just come to mind. For example, people that have some type of experience, let's say like an anxiety or a panic attack. So you have this thing that occurs, but then what happens is people start to be afraid of having a panic attack, yeah. and then it starts to lead to other problems like withdrawal from society and so forth. Or again, maybe what I was just talking about in terms of the postural thing, right? So they they have this feeling state of fear. And then what they do is then they start to have a feeling about that. And maybe that's not so much the same thing, but more like the panic attack situation. And I think that that always struck me that I've had lots of people over the years, because it seems to be obviously something people are more willing to talk about, as having anxiety or panic attacks. And they never seem to have any awareness of what is going on when they have that, despite having seen multiple therapists. And amazing that they never seem to have any strategies to deal with it. Now, personally, admitting listeners out there may have told me to talk about this. I've had panic attacks in the past, and I was having them as a teenager. At some point, there was just this reactivity of it. But then I started having problems of being afraid of having panic attacks, not (laughs) knowing when they were going to come and so forth. And this was creating a snowball problem. And at some point, and this is where I think the magic of the work that you do is, is that there is an intuitiveness. There is a degree where people start to work themselves out of their problems and there must be some structure that they use to do this, but nobody seems to kind of try to figure out what that is so they could apply it to someone else. It seems to be magic, right? And we talked about that a lot is that this magic occurs and is the magic really the structure? Is that what it is? Yeah, what we call magic
1: is the ability to step back from ourselves because when you step back from the panic or the pain and you're aware, so you bring awareness to the panic, that awareness puts you at a whole different place. You have just transcended your experience. It's one of the mysteries of the human mind and experience that we can transcend pain. We can transcend the fear. we can step out of it, observe it, and not only observe it, but now bring different resources to it. And now we've got to structure the meta level structures of what we're actually doing.
0: I'm going to ask you a follow up question here, because you also talked about this in one of your recent newsletters. Do we call that disassociation? And does disassociation Remove us from an aspect of life of really kind of experiencing it in a way that is meaningful? Does it make us numb? Does it make us, I guess, some people will say, like, I don't want to be thinking so much. One of the things that I would hear early on when I started doing this kind of work, as I'm sure you've heard this much too, and when people, you start talking about this stuff and they say, gee, Sam, you know, it must be really exhausting to be you. <laughs> You're just <laughs> thinking and thinking. And it's like, that's not. But, Let's talk about that. Is this disassociation? Because there seems to be a lot of confusion around that topic.
1: The short answer is no. The larger answer is that there is no such thing as disassociation. Not literally. A person cannot step out of their body. I've said to many people, try it.
0: <laughs> Get out of your body and walk over there. But they're hallucinating a out-of-body <laughs> experience, I guess, then, right? So yeah, that they're so- metastating,
1: right? We're using language in a accommodative way. And so dissociation is one form of metastating. When you dissociate from one state, so you're, you are transcending that state, and you're going into a state of numbness or not feelingness, pure observation. In that way, you would be dissociating from the pain. But every time you step out of one state, you're in another state. And so you could be in a state of numbness. And that's what most of the time we're actually referring to for people who are dissociative. But that's just one state out of thousands. You could dissociate out of the pain into joy, into calmness, into relaxation, into care, into love, into curiosity, into learning, into many, many other things. So that's why it's not dissociation as such, but it's stepping out. So the question now becomes, you're stepping out into what? And we humans have the ability to numb ourselves. So one form of pain control is, think about numbness. When you go to the dentist and your mouth gets numbed, or when you have a shot and it numbs some of the skin, and feel that numbness, now bring that numbness feeling
0: to this other one. And that sounds a perfect way, you know, those of you who are listening to this dealing with pain, it sounds like a, a good technique to have is to at times to be able to do that probably, especially when yeah. pain might be very intense. So whenever we talk about this and dissociation, however we want to phrase it there, and meditating and so forth, the, the always the question starts to come in is meditation and mindfulness and uh-huh. and how these things relate to exactly what you're talking about. Okay.
1: When you bring one state to another state, and you step back and you are observing the first state, you're observing it through the second state. Now, if I'm observing it through observation and just witnessing, that'll tend to be mindfulness. So one form of mindfulness is being fully aware, fully mindful of what I'm doing. If I'm stepping into learning and I'm looking at my previous state through the lens of learning, then uh, the kind of mindfulness will be learning mindfulness. If it's curiosity, it'll be curious mindfulness. If it's compassion, it'll be compassionate mind. So whatever state you're stepping up into and looking at the first one, it qualifies the kind of mindfulness that will bring you. Now, on the negative side, if you step out and you access a state of judgment, which most people are so absolutely skilled at doing, now the kind of mindfulness is judgment mindfulness. And that's the kind of thinking that most people say is painful and overthinking. The problem isn't overthinking, it's the
0: kind of thinking they're doing about the first thing. This sounds like a reasoning why some people resist mindfulness if they are an internal judger, right? Because once they yeah. become aware of their thoughts, they go right into making themselves feel bad. And then therefore, yeah. they don't want to be mindful. Right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, they are so quick to access,
1: I'm inadequate, uh, I'm flawed, I'm imperfect, I'm, I'll am i never amount to anything. I'm, and they're so quick to access those kinds of thoughts. So they're
0: going to run from that. Yeah. The idea also, and this has come to mind a lot, and especially when you were just talking about this, is that if we think about the field of health, a lot of stuff with hypnosis and neuro linguistic programming, this stuff has been around for so long. I mean, it scares me to even think 30, 40 years now. It's been this long. (laughs) But at the same time, things have progressed so far in these fields, and some of these Mm -hmm. things are just again day one learnings on these trainings. But yet now, mindfulness is just becoming popular. And mindfulness, just getting people to become aware of things is life changing for some people, yeah. which yeah. is amazing to me because it seems so level one. If you're now aware of your mind, but that's barely scratching the surface of what you can do uh-huh. and being able to do other things and meditation, I run across so many people. I'm absolutely an advocate of any techniques that people want to do that help them feel better. But I find that so many people in pain and so many people with challenges in their health are meditating and spending time doing that, but it doesn't seem to be carrying over to other things. And Mm -hmm. I'd love your opinion on why that might be happening. They seem to be able to sit still and do transcendental meditation or do mindfulness techniques and get to this, which I have no idea if they're in this. We use things like heart rate variability and so forth to see what the brain is doing. And they seem to be getting to a better state but that state is not blending with anything else. It doesn't seem to be making many other things better. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Is that these state inductions or these meta-state processes that seem to be stuck in a container and they're not getting generalized?
1: So I would say that most meditation, the value of it is they're stepping into calmness. They're relaxing. Yeah. And they're being calm. The problem with is that the calmness sometimes is trying to Move away from dealing with reality, dealing with whatever needs to be dealt. They're getting so calm that they're trying to avoid thinking and they might find some mantra to just keep repeating so they don't think. So instead of a calm alertness, a calm learning, a calm curiosity, calm resourcefulness, it's just calm. The calmness is good, but as you said, it's just First step, and unless there's something else, another resource is not going to make that much of a difference.
0: Doesn't seem like it's enough to solve problems in your marriage or to change your eating behaviors. Is to meditate over here and get calm, yeah. but then you enter right back into life where all of these issues come back up again. Right? Yeah. I think that's such a key point, and that I mean, again, I see the value in doing it because most people are so stressed and going twenty four seven. It's probably a huge benefit for them to just step out Mm -hmm. for a second and relax. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the model and all of your work, which is, again, what I try to encourage people to understand a lot more of is that meditation and that state is only as good as also it can be applied into a situation where you need that. So if you can sit and meditate for 10 minutes, that's great. But if your children are driving you insane and running around and you can't (laughs) access some degree of that calmness then yeah. it's not getting applied into a specific context and this leads into another thing that i was going to talk about is I'm a big advocate of pain neuroscience education which is the idea that when people have pain and fundamentally don't have a good understanding about pain itself mm-hmm. it's very obvious when we sprain an ankle or we break a bone and we get you know limbs that swell up our brain looks at that it's very easy to go yeah i know why i'm in pain and then when that goes away i'm not going to hurt chronic pain is a different animal altogether And the way that we deal with it is, first of all, help people understand what is going on. It's the brain is sensing, feeling threatened by some combination of experiences. Mm -hmm. So when we teach somebody something and they start to have like an understanding of something, some people will just change. You see behaviors Mm -hmm. change. Their pain goes away. Other people in the moment will have an aha moment. And this is not limited to my work, but all sorts of health professionals Mm -hmm. That they'll teach somebody something and they have that aha moment. You'll see their physiology start to change. Wow, I did not know this. This is amazing. But then nothing happens after that. The next time you see the client, they're literally right back in the same thing as if that discussion never happened. And that is very frustrating for practitioners feeling like they had that breakthrough. What yeah. is happening here? And how do we fix that? <laughs> and helping people bridge that gap.
1: So what we've done in neural semantics to address that is to address what has been labeled as the knowing-doing gap. So as you just said, people know, but the doing, it's not connected. So we have a pattern called mind-to-muscle by which we linguistically drive a thought into neurology. And the basis of that is that it takes more neurology to say certain things than to say other things. To say principles and to say great insights, I understand, I recognize is different from saying I believe, or I will, or I'm feeling, or I'm doing. So we came up with a way to help someone to drive into their neurology what they say they understand, their insight, their principle. So we start with that principle. What do you understand about pain relief? What do you understand about exercise or managing yourself throughout the day? What would be a great idea that if you could get that idea into your neurology and your neurology could live it, could be commissioned to it, what is that idea? And so then we work on getting that idea driven into
0: neurology so that it's not left as just the intellectual level. And this is kind of something that I think a lot of people are interested in too, is that What's the difference between a thought, a belief, a value, some of these Uh things that just seems to be, how do you get one to transition into another? And first of all, I hear language. So when we use certain words that are more powerful, and I think uh, what you're referring to, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is these modal operators, right? Or can, will, and these words, just experiencing the difference in the word and our neurology is enough to Push it deeper somehow into our, I don't want to say mind, but our neurology. That probably is a better way to put it.
1: And that's one of the assumptions of NLP. We are neuro-linguistic beings that, unlike the animals, which are neurological beings and they have instincts with informational content, we are neurological beings who have linguistics that create our instincts as it were. So the meaning I give to something then becomes the instinct that I'm living. And this is where listening to a person's language, I will always have this pain, it is not a very good induction of a trance. It'll create the pain trance. And so we got to break that neurology and and bring it back to right now I'm feeling pain in my leg because I bruised it or, or broke it. That's quite different from, I'm in pain, which sounds like forever and pervasive and something that if I'm in pain, then that's a much bigger problem
0: to, to locate it. We hear a lot of that kind of language with people. I've tried everything. I don't have (laughs) hope for things anymore. And I just talked on someone else's podcast about that and saying, you know, when people come in, this is what I hear about their experience. They've tried everything and I'm going to go, this is what's available. Listening to their language is so finite and conditions in particular in health always seem to be that way where people tend to take something that is fluid and we don't know, meaning that something is a temporary or it is an is-ism that isism ism thats occurring in real time. And then they put it into this thing that becomes a box that becomes finite. And conditions a lot of times are that way. And unfortunately, conditions that I always remind people of is look at how much health and medicine is learning. So these things that used to be finite are now not finite because we know more about them. Uh So that sounds really important is also just to change the structure of the language and to play with it a little bit. And it does sound like that a lot of that is gonna be very personalized. It's gonna be based on that exactly. own individual. Yeah. And the one thing I'll bring up on that too is that for listeners in once once we talked about the meta-states, especially the one that I think at home is the judgment meta-state. Hmm. I can imagine what happens, and because I experienced this too, is that when people will start becoming aware of their language, And just with the awareness that they're doing these things, the judgmenter comes right in and starts judging that they're using that language, and then it starts becoming a thing again. So if they recognize this, I mean, it's probably, and this is where my own agenda is, and we'll talk about this, is this, people really need to overcome the issue or the stigmas that are associated with working with somebody with this. They don't seem to have too much of a problem when their back hurts coming in and having me give them massage work or giving them an exercise program, just with the acknowledgement that, hey, you know more about this than I do, and it seems to just make sense to them to come get a strategy and say, teach me how to do this. But when it comes to this work, we seem to run into a huge sticking point as if it's like somehow different. If you don't know how exactly how your mind works and how to auto-magically change yourself, then you're an idiot or something's wrong with you. Do you see this as just being a huge issue?
1: And this is another orientation. This is the judgmental orientation towards self is the problem. And the solution is going to be a compassionate, a respectful, a dignity orientation toward yourself that you're a human being you have value you're fallible so be gloriously fallible and embrace and welcome the person you are creating that orientation then allows the change work to occur and the change work is going to be now just very elegant and smooth and it's going to move forward without getting stuck at all the
0: judgment against self And so there's a lot to work out there. And I hope people are really getting the message here with this stuff is that, you know, we have to be mindful, we have to be aware of what it is that we're doing, we have to engage with it. And uh, something else that I wanted to throw in there, because always going back to the big things that I learned from your books, uh, the spirit of NLP was a big one, which was the book that you had wrote about Richard Bandler's NLP practitioner, master practitioner training. And I think everybody needs to read at least the first, I think, 10 to 15 pages of this book. Because it talks about what you really well define and flesh out, the spirit or the attitude of a practitioner. And we get so lost when any system, when we're working with people about the techniques, and the techniques just seem to kind of be it. In my world, it's one hand position. It's called myofascial release. It's called this. And that doesn't matter so much. What matters is what you call the attitude that drives it and mm-hmm. the way that you think and approach things. And I guess uh, you fleshed it out with like, uh, you could fill us in with curiosity, with these, these states that people, that seem to make them so less serious and more willing to play with this stuff. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about why that's important?
1: One of the things in meta-states is that The state that you bring to your state is going to qualify your experience. So if I'm in a learning state and I think learning is boring and I bring boredom to my learning, then I've got bored learning. But if I bring joy, I've got joyful learning. Same thing with myself. So in metastates, we do three metastates to self. First of all, respect, unconditional value. The second is acceptance. I'm a fallible human being. I'm going to make mistakes. And then appreciation. Here's my strengths. Here's the things I can do very well. And I'm going to focus on that. And that sets up self-acceptance, self-appreciation, self-esteem. And so it creates that orientation and it's going to start qualifying. Now the person is safe enough to face whatever is threatening or dangerous painful to them. And so it's that qualifying effect of the metastate that modifies and qualifies the experience. That's why the second response that you have to anything is more important than the first. And the third response you have to the second response is more important
0: than the second. There's two things that come to mind there is that number one, of course, that's why my daughter does not follow through with doing anything until I make it fun. You know, that sounds right, Mm -hmm. right? And those of you who love that old phrase that I just keep hearing it, I hate these old anchors, but how does that make you feel? <laughs> and how does that make you feel? But, and just kind of driving the point is that a lot of that is what we're trying to get to is what are you thinking about your thoughts and so forth? Very powerful stuff. Now I want to move into some things because of time purposes. I also want to get to see these other things that one of the things that you have done. First of all, I have to ask you. How the heck have you written 66 books? And you seem to just now people, I just want everybody to understand Michael's books. So they're not pamphlets. You know, we're talking dense, dense material. And I have spent, there's times where if you look at my purchase list from your books, you'd probably see it sometimes there's a year gap or more. And that's because that's how long it took me to get through the book. And because people will read things, and what I absolutely did not want to do is just read things for the brain part. I need to do the work. And there's so much density in that work. The fact that you can just put all of these books out is just incredible to me. And you wrote, I think, a manuscript. It was a book about this, about writing mastery. So you take these topics and you apply neurosemantics and nlp and you extract these strategies and you seem to kind of just really dive deep into these things to try to pull these strategies apart are you applying your own model to writing how gifted are you as a writer just naturally one of the recent
1: books i wrote it'll be out for publication in a month or so is executive wisdom and in writing that i did something on the side i wrote my own biography and so writing and looking at that has been developed over 40, 50 years. And when I looked at some of the writing that was 40 years old, <laughs> I went into a state of embarrassment <laughs> and shame. So you like, still do this. <laughs> like like I, I put that stuff out <laughs> because it was not good writing. So many years ago, maybe 40 years ago, I started reading one book on writing every year. Some years I read many books on writing. So I studied the field of writing. And then somewhere in the 1990s, I decided to model best selling authors. So I got about 12 different best selling author books and read them from the standpoint of what is the key that allows these books to become best sellers. So in terms of writing, it's been something I've focused on trying to do. And you habituate anything after a while, and then it comes fairly easy. One of the habits I have is I write every day, a minimum of 30 minutes, and most days it'll be an hour, two hours, three hours. You practice anything long enough, and you get fairly decent at it.
0: Now, those are the stories that I love to hear. It's It's not as exciting to hear that somebody is just a savant at something, and they can just <laughs> do it, because that doesn't help most people but also to realize that you, number one, you didn't start from there. And two, that you, having gone back, that we, I think there's another level of judgment also, which people will say is that once you learn this NLP and neurosemantic stuff, you don't feel any of these kinds of states about your own stuff. Oh, well, you know how to fix it, so why don't you just fix it? And we're always a work in progress, but it's the constant and never-ending progress of applying that stuff to that. And I have to imagine... That at least to some degree, because I know there's a variety of strategies, that you enjoy the process. Oh, exactly. Yeah.
1: And that's one of the keys to anything, loving what you do. If you love what you do is not work. It becomes part of the flow experience that the competence and the challenge are coming together in a synthesis. And you love it because you are becoming more through the experience.
0: That's great. And so many different projects. And I'll bring a couple of these up because when you look at the kinds of books, and one of them, for example, that I look at is uh, Michael wrote uh, Inside Out Wealth. A lot of this was you would wrote a book and extracted the real juice out of all the books on wealth that you had read and put it into something. Now, I think the most powerful thing here that some people might find overwhelming because it's, again, the density But it's the questions and the constant questions about the different questions and things that really kind of flesh out, I think, what a therapist or a coach would do for you is to ask you these questions and actually have to figure that out. So just as a warning, when you read these books, you have to answer the questions. You have to do a journal. And that's what I learned after a while because I would read and I couldn't get through four pages because there was questions and I had to pull out the journal and start answering them. But that was the key difference. And if I were to take one moment just to say it, because I really appreciate it, the book that probably changed my life was Unleashed. And it was the book that you had wrote was one of the series, I think, of the meta coaching in the way that you lay them out now. But it was about Maslow's hierarchy and about self-actualization. And again, the content in there, if you really go through it, and it's just life-changing, and that's only one book out of a whole series of just trying to explore yourself and uh, your preferences and all of that sort of stuff. And it it was a game changer and that stuff sticks where you really dive into the work. So thank you for that.
1: So what you're describing now is really the process of learning. I mean, real learning, authentic learning. Most people don't know how to authentically and genuinely learn. They'll memorize some details or memorize some facts and it'll be head knowledge, but they have not learned themselves. What you just described by how you implemented it and acted on it and turned it into something pragmatic is really genuine learning. And if people could learn how to learn, then they could get things from books. But most people don't know how to
0: really absorb what you just described from a book. That is a big problem. And we've talked about, (laughs) again, newsletters talking about recent issues that are happening, lack of critical thinking, being able to ask questions, and that's it. Just being spoon-fed information and regurgitating like a literally a pipe that goes in and out. You know, that's it. And there's nothing that's processing back there. So I do want to mention to everybody that, again, there's a vast variety of books here. And I, I can't encourage you enough to go through these. This one was on wealth, which is more than money. Wealth is a concept. You have a book on relationships. There's a book on it's health, but in particular, I think there was parts of it that were really pertained to a lot of people have issues with weight loss. I think finding the slim person within. I forget what the name of that one was.
1: Yeah, games fit and slim people
0: play. Yes, and games on leadership. These sorts of books. So make sure he's got sixty six books, and they're all just amazing, amazing books. The next question that's going to come up as we kind of wrap here is the issue of you have a coaching system people are immediately going to start flooding you because they want therapy or coaching. So I'm sure that you have a limited availability if you do it at all these days. But let's talk about how people can find resources and coaches and therapists who can offer the training who've been really trained in the work that you offer.
1: Hmm. Neurosemantics.com, just one word, Neurosemantics. For coaching, if you click on meta coaching, one of the first pull-down menus is find a coach. And we've got coaches in something like 66 different countries. Click on the country, the institute in that country, and you'll see a whole list of coaches. We've got nearly 4,000 meta coaches that are licensed around the world. There's lots of coaches people can find. For trainers, there's a section there on training. And if you click on that button, find a trainer, there's an institute of Neurosemantics in the United States. And there's several trainers there. We have fewer trainers in the United
0: States than probably any other country. Not Um, sure why that doesn't surprise me. You know, for whatever reason here, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, the good news is everybody out there is that, first of all, the coaches who do this work that have been trained by Michael Mm. are going to be at a certain level of quality for sure. You know, when you do that, no matter where they're at, I mean, obviously, probably the language barrier is the biggest thing. I mean, virtual coaching. So it's really... Going to be yeah. available anywhere now, uh, for the especially for this kind of work. We've got to get out there and, and get more people interested. I think healthcare practitioners need this work because this is so paramount. And, and in particular for me and talking with lots of different people, being on podcasts, talking about pain neuroscience, there's a huge gap that's missing here mm-hmm. between the knowledge base and teaching people how to implement. And mm-hmm. we're working with this realm of I get it. Therapists and doctors only they need to be focused on doing the things that they're doing diagnostic medicine, therapy, etc. They need to learn some of these skills, and not all therapists are aware of this stuff, so we get yeah. stuck here in the middle of trying to figure out who to send and to help do deeper work with. So the yeah. work is very much needed from you, and love to see more and more of your stuff. Again, we talked about where you can find you. You have a new book coming out soon? What's the book? The executive? What is it again? Executive wisdom. There's a series, executive learning,
1: executive decisions, executive thinking, and the new one will be executive wisdom. All of that goes to a basic theme that we started with, thinking, and really helping people be good thinkers, because everything else comes from the thinking.
0: Well, we've got lots of room for improvement in the needing to think realm right now. And at this point, at some point, I really want to bother you to come back. In particular, I just want to mention one more thing. Michael does something now that for years I really wished somebody had done, which is I wanted to somebody to know from the land of linguistics and semantics to literally talk about politics and tell us what people are doing and what is happening out there and to see how we're being bamboozled and manipulated by language and what is actually happening. And you talk about that a lot in your newsletters, which is great. I always appreciate the info that you're putting out there. I'm glad you're doing it because so many people are so terrified of talking politics. Um, and I'm sure you get a lot of positive and negative feedback from people that don't like to really think critically about these things. But we have to be mindful and be critical about what information we're receiving. And to, of course, the, the last word there is to think, right? Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right. With that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, Dr. Hull, for being here. It was a great pleasure. I wish you success on new book launch and everything on into the future. Well, thank you, Sam. It's been a real pleasure and great
1: questions you asked. Really appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Thank you.